Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Lighthouse. It's so good to see you all here. It's so good to be in the same room together. Um, why don't you go ahead and find your seats. Uh, if you're able to stand, please stand with us as we worship together.
you have one more? Okay, I just wanted to make sure you're like standing up here. Um, stay up here with me for a second because as we were singing that, uh, it's funny how sometimes you, you sing words and then sometimes you actually listen to the words you're singing and you begin to recognize just how much they are a cry from the reality of our lives. And I know that for you right now, I was just, the line in there, um, you know, my whole life I place within your hands was resonating for for me, but also as I'm thinking about you and Ben and your daughter Stella and kind of what God has been doing in your life. So would you share a little bit about kind of where you guys find yourself at? Yeah, so um, like many other people, Ben lost his job back in March when all of the COVID closures started happening. He's in live sound. Um, no surprise there. Um, that's what he does for a living. Um, <clears throat> and unfortunately, because of the area that we're in and LA being the big place where he does work, um, there's no work on the books for him until next year, at the end of next year, the end of 2021. Um, so, you know, he, like other people, have been relying on unemployment, um, which unfortunately, because we've been relying on it for so long, uh, it's going to run out. Um, so we kind of had to take a hard look at our finances and our situation and we realized that we just cannot afford to live here anymore, um, which is really sad and hard because, you know, we've, we've really grown to love mm -hmm. this place and this area and you people, um, but it just, it doesn't make sense to just kill ourselves financially. Um, so we will be leaving. Um, we will be going to Nashville, Tennessee, um, because that is where work is, and it's, it's the cost of living is lower, um, and so that's yeah. that's the move that we kind of have been forced to make. But we do really see the Lord's hand in all of it. Um, it it was a very quick decision. It was not something that we've been like brooding over for a while. But um, yeah, I think probably within a week we made the decision and things started falling into place. Mm -hmm. So it's hard not to see God's hand working totally. in all of it. So. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's where we're at. Yeah, I, I, I've been thinking a lot about how, you know, Paul was going, hey, we're going to Asia, and then God's like, no, you're not. Come to Macedonia, and just that, that total transition of life. And I know that this is something you guys have not made lightly, that you guys have been praying together. And by the way, this is not their last week. Next week will be the last week, and we're going to have an opportunity to bless you and send you guys out. Uh, the hard part in here is that we're family. And you've, for the last two years, God has blessed us with the Sabin family. And we're so grateful. And even in your role, you know, as you have, through this whole COVID curveball, have grown so much as a worship leader. I'm so grateful for your role in here and for Ben and the investments that he's made. And we just, we are thankful that for this Kairos season, this just perfect season, he brought you here. And now he's saying, okay, I, w I have another purpose and plan for you. And so we're looking forward to that. And then we, you know, as a church, just kind of say, we know that God will bring somebody to not necessarily fill your shoes, but to bring their gifting into this next season. And so I just want to take a moment, actually, to pray for you. Pray for us. And then we're going to go ahead and dive in. So if you would bow your heads. Father God, I'm so grateful for Cheyenne. I'm so grateful for Ben. I'm so grateful for Stella that we've been able to begin watch to grow and thankful, God, for the gifting you've given them and for the ways that they have brought themselves fully to bear and say, God, help yourself to my life. You've been faithful in that. 
And as they prepare their hearts for this next season of ministry in Nashville, would you supernaturally begin to set up divine appointments? God, would you lead them to the next church or the next community that will be radically blessed by this couple? God, we lift up our own community, recognizing that you are sovereign. You have the worship leaders on a thousand hills, and we just pray that you would bring the right one for us in this season. But we pray for your provision. We pray for your direction. God, I, I also just want to pray for others who are grappling with, man, the life that I anticipated six months ago isn't reality. God, what do we do? Where do we go? What, how do you want me to invest myself? At the end of the day, we say, help yourself to our lives. May you be glorified in all that we do. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. Love you. Um, you guys, go ahead and grab a seat if you hadn't already. Sorry, should have done that first. Um, the other thing that I want to let you know about is through this whole COVID season, one of the things that has consistently stayed the same is that we don't look to church to be within a building. We look to be the church beyond the walls of the building. And one of the ways over the last several years that we have seen that play out is through this thing called Love Costa Mesa. Love Costa Mesa is not just our church serving our community. It is the church in Costa Mesa. There might be 55 iterations of the church in this city. There's only one church. Jesus is the head of it. We get to be part of it, and we are not in competition with any other church in this city, which is beautiful, because then we get to play together, and we get to say, God, help yourself to us and our resources. And some of our best resources are you sitting in these seats. So next Saturday... We get an opportunity to put that into practice as we, the church, come together and say, let's love our city. And now, obviously, COVID throws a wrench in this because there's some of us who, even yet, you're, you're watching at home, you're like, I'm not comfortable serving in person. And we recognize that. So there are opportunities for you to serve writing letters of, of encouragement and to support. There are ways that you can serve online through prayer gatherings that will be taking place that way. And then there are going to be ways that we can serve together in, in groups, COVID-friendly ways, but making sure that we're investing in our city. And if you're interested in finding out how you can jump in and how you can be used, you can go to lovecostamesa.org and you can see all the different ways that you can serve. And you I believe at this point you can sign up online, although they've been having some issues with that. If you find yourself having an issue signing up online, Don Shannon would love to help you, okay? So you can email him at don, D-O-N, at Lighthouse Community, or you can just go ahead and write to pastor at Lighthouse, and we'll make sure he gets that information. But we want to help you get plugged in. And then we're also going to be one of the outposts. There's going to be three outposts around our city where people can come and check in and, and get some direction. Lighthouse's uh, parking lot will be one of those outposts. And some of you may want to help come and serve in that capacity. If so, you are welcome. Okay? So I wanted to let you know about that. And with that, let's go ahead and dive in. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. We are working uh, through this beautiful letter that Paul wrote to a church in Philippi. And he writes, you know, initially he's writing to say thank you because they have been very generous in their financial support of his ministry. And he, so he's writing to say thanks. But Paul has a, a deeper relationship with the Philippian church than just their financial supporters. He was also the one who really began the church there. And so he has a fatherly kind of posture towards the church. And so he takes this opportunity in this letter to 
like a father to exhort them on how they are to live. And he does this a couple of ways. The first way he does it is, as parents often do, he models for his spiritual children the way that he would want them to live. And so last week we looked at the ways in which he looked at his own circumstances and he said, you know, I might be incarcerated. I might be awaiting a, a, a trial that could result in my execution. And yet, I celebrate. And the reason for that we find in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 1. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Don't be discouraged for me. Don't feel like this is a major bump in the road of the gospel advancing because it's actually served to advance the gospel. Not only are other Christ followers emboldened to share their faith with more courage because they see me doing it, but there are even people who are trying to share the gospel in order to stir up trouble for me. Literally thinking that they could make more trouble for me by sharing the gospel. And yet I don't care. I don't care if they're doing it for good motives or false motives. So long as the gospel is being preached, I rejoice. And so he models for them this mindset that at the end of the day, life is not about his own comfort. It's not about his own safety. It's not about his own plans being carried out. Ultimately, he says, my life is an offering to God. However he wants to use me in order to advance his purpose and plans is his prerogative. Because I am his slave. I have given my life to him. My whole life is oriented around him. And on the heels of that, Paul now turns his attention to the, the believers living in Philippi. And he calls them to begin living out of the same posture that he himself has modeled for them. And let's talk for a moment about their circumstances. They may not be incarcerated, awaiting a trial that, will, that could potentially end their life, but they're not living in comfort in any way, shape, or form. The believers living in Philippi are living in a city that is radically caustic to their faith. At best, the rest of the city and the rest of the surrounding region would be indifferent to their faith, would just write it off as a crutch, right? As, as nothing but, you know, mythology, at best. But the reality is, many of them were enduring great persecution, losing jobs, losing safety, being beaten up, sometimes being stoned, simply because of their own faith, because of their declaration that Jesus is not only their Savior, but He's their Lord. And here's the reason why. Because within Philippi, the people who didn't believe in Jesus, they, are, they, they didn't have a need in their minds for a new king. They already had a king. They didn't need a lord or a savior. They already had a lord or a savior that they worshipped. And his name was the emperor. In fact, there was a, a temple in Philippi that was focused on worshipping the emperor of Rome. Do you know who the emperor was at that time? He asks, you know, to a group of people that, you know, you know, sorry, they... The, let me just tell you, the emperor at that time was a guy named Nero. Not exactly a nice guy, right? Nero, a couple years later, Nero would be the guy who would say, you know, I really kind of want to improve Rome. That, that area over there is kind of junky. And so he intentionally lights a fire and he burns down kind of the, the bad part of town. And then when people catch wind and begin to go, you know, I think Nero is the one who actually started that fire. He goes, well, who can I blame for this? 
And he knew that the Christians weren't very well respected. He knew that the Christians were people that people mocked. And so he said, it's those Christians who did it. And Nero embarked on an awful vendetta against the Christ followers. He would throw Christians to the lions to entertain the masses. He would use Christians as human tiki torches, literally burning them alive along the roads that led into Rome. This was not a nice man. And you thought for a moment that we have been persecuted by some of our elected officials. We got nothing. Those, they have nothing on Nero when it comes to persecuting us for our faith. And it's into this atmosphere that Paul writes this letter encouraging Christ followers to live a different way. He is writing this. I want you to keep this in mind. He's writing to people who worship a Savior that was murdered on a Roman cross. And he is writing under incarceration, chained to a Roman guard, awaiting a trial before Nero that may very well end with his execution. And into that, he writes this in verse 27. Whatever happens talking about himself. Whatever happens to me, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or I only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And this will be a sign to them that they will be destroyed because of their lack of faith, but that you will be saved, and not saved by Nero or anyone else but God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're going through the same struggle that you saw I had, and you now hear that I still have. When I read that, it sure sounds to me like Paul's not all that concerned about his circumstances, is it? Sounds to me like Paul's not really overcome and discouraged and despondent about what is going on to him or to the, the believers living in Philippi. Because for Paul, he looks at his life and he says, it doesn't matter what happens to me. So long as the will of my master continues to advance, I'm golden. And he's encouraged by the faith that he hears coming from the Philippians. So long as they continue to live out the gospel, so long as they continue to exhibit their faith, he's fine. Even if it ends in his death, even if they're being persecuted, even if they're undergoing a lot of, un, you know, it's, even if it's uncomfortable, he's fine with it. So long as the gospel advances. That word gospel is an important one, by the way. It's important because Paul uses it six times in this first chapter. He talks about it in, in verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Later on, he then turns to them and he says, I, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. To him, it seemed that the word gospel encapsulates the, the, the purpose for which he lives. And the goal of his life. And it doesn't matter if his life is, is sacrificed in the process. So long as the gospel is advancing, he celebrates. 
And I know that in the modern church, we throw the word gospel around quite a bit as well. Right? We talk about being gospel-centered churches. In fact, I would suggest that just about every single iteration of the church around our world would say that they are a gospel-centered church. But that's where our agreement tends to, to end, because when it comes to actually living out what that word means, when, it, when we begin to look at how we are a gospel-centered church and what our practices are because of that, you begin to, to think, maybe we don't have the same definition of that word, right? Or in the immortal words of Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride, I do not think that word means what you think it means. Words are, words are really important. Words are social constructs that we agree upon a meaning so that we can take information from our own mind and we can transfer it to another person. Words, ideas, you know, we, we basically say, here's what I understand the world to be like. And this works really well when we understand the words to mean the same thing. But when people have a different definition of a word, that's when the misunderstanding happens. And have you ever had a conversation with somebody and you're talking about, you're using the same terminology, but you realize pretty quickly, I don't think we're talking about the same thing here. Anybody had that experience? Yeah, all the time. Or have you ever had a conversation with your sweetheart where you are just not seeing eye to eye and you are fighting over words? And then like when you cooled off, maybe the next morning, you realize, I really think we were actually arguing for the same thing, but we were just using different terminology, right? I think, and she's saying, I feel, and you're like, we don't see eye to eye, but in reality, you really see eye to eye. Words matter. I think about all the times that I, I tell my kids, I love you, and they say, you don't love me. If you love me, you'd let me have ice cream for breakfast. And I said, because I love you, I don't let you have ice cream for breakfast, as I'm throwing my spoon from having taken a bite of ice cream in the sink before they see it, right? <laughs> Hypothetically speaking. Or, or, or all the times that I have, said, have called God Father and prayed to our Father God and just, you know, I, I view God in a lot of ways through the lens of my own father, but then I, I have a conversation with somebody whose father didn't have a clue how to be a father was an abusive father, or perhaps wasn't even around. They had an absentee father. And for them, you call God Father, and it's like a shot to the heart. And it's actually an impediment to their faith because of their own earthly experience with their father. Words matter, but even more so is our understanding of those words. And so, because the word gospel is so unbelievably central to Paul... And because the word gospel is so radically central to how we understand ourselves as people who live according to the gospel, I think it's important for us to define that term, the gospel. So that's what we're going to do this morning. That's where we're going to really lean in, is just trying to get some clarity on what we mean when we say that we want to live according to the gospel. Is that fair? Okay. So the word gospel itself is taken from the Greek word evangelion. And evangelion means good news. It's, from, it's the word from which we get evangelize or evangelization, right? And evangelization simply means that we share the good news. But of course, this begs the question, well, what is good news? What is the good news? Is the good news that, you know, the Lakers won? 
is the good news that, uh, you know, it's breakfast time. That's not what we mean when we're talking about good news. And we'll get to that in just a second. But we know that on the night that Jesus was born, there was this sense of, you know, the, the angels show up and they declare the good news of great joy to all mankind, that in the city of David, the Savior has been born. That was good news. Why was it good news? Because he had come into this world to redeem it. And it's really interesting when we start talking about the good news and you really start kind of pulling out, well, what do we mean by that? And there's a lot of people who would use John 3.16 to sum up the gospel. Any of you guys ever think, like, that's the perfect verse to sum up the gospel? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. There's the gospel in a nutshell. End of story. Put a period on it. And then you say, well, what does that mean? What is the gospel? And they would sum it up in this way, perhaps. Jesus came into this world, suffered on a Roman cross so that he could redeem us from our sin and save us from going to hell. Some people would say, that's it, that's the gospel. And I will tell you that that is absolutely categorically true. But it's only a portion of the gospel. It's a part of the gospel. And when we put a period there and a chapter break there and say, that's it, what we do is we shrink the gospel down to being focused on heaven and hell. It turns our faith into fire insurance. And it turns what Jesus did on the cross for us as nothing more than saving us in the afterlife. And the problem with that is, if we are only focused on the afterlife, if we're only focused on what happens after this, after we shuffle off this mortal coil, then it doesn't really speak to what we do here and now. It doesn't speak to our lives. And it makes very passive, very lazy Christ followers. Dallas Willard put it this way. <laughs> he said, Not only have we been saved by grace, we've been paralyzed by it. Now, Dallas is somebody I respect greatly. And he is not trying to to put down grace as if it's not sufficient. We are saved by grace. But what he was getting at is if all we have been saved by, or all we have been saved for is to protect us from hell, then what is the point of even trying to follow Jesus? We allow, it, it shrinks it down to we are, Jesus is our Savior. But it has nothing to say about Jesus being our Lord. After all, since he suffered for us, why should we suffer in this life? And so that is a partial, that is a part of the gospel. And if we accept it as all of the gospel, we will find ourselves being very passive in our faith. If all the gospel speaks to is the afterlife, then it doesn't speak to this life now. Does this make sense? Okay, so others will say, oh, hold on a second. No, the gospel has way more to say about this life than just the afterlife. Unfortunately, they begin to filter their understanding of what the gospel is through the culture that we live in, namely the 21st century, consumeristic, comfort-focused American culture that we have been raised in. And so they come up with a very self-focused gospel. 
that says, yes, Jesus died to save us from hell, and Jesus died to give us our very best life now. This is what we might call, uh, you know, the comfort gospel or, or, or the, um, what is it, uh, prosperity gospel, right? Jesus' greatest desire is to save you from suffering then, but also now. And his desire is to give you health. If you follow Jesus, you will find yourself being much more healthy. You'll find yourself being much more wealthy. You'll find yourself being a whole heck of a lot more comfortable or happy. And I just need to step back and say, I think that the prosperity gospel perspective gets the characters right. Right? Us and Jesus gets those characters right, but unfortunately it inverts it. Rather than us being us serving Jesus, it turns Jesus into our servant. And our comfort and our will is by far the most important thing in our minds. So therefore, rather than us saying, Jesus, how can I serve you? How do you want to use my life to bring about your will? We say, Jesus, how are you going to bring about my will on, on earth and in heaven? And it turns Jesus into a glorified cosmic butler that is here to do our bidding. And that flies in the face of so much of Scripture. Flies in the face of Jesus looking at his disciples and saying, guys, listen, in this world you will have trouble. But you can take heart in the fact that because of what I'm about to do on the cross, the brokenness of this world won't get the last word. Because I've overcome the world. And it flies in the face of Paul's posture when he calls himself a doulos, a slave to Jesus. And he calls Jesus his Lord, his kurios, which means master. Begin to realize, no, the gospel is not about our health, our wealth, and our comfort. So we find ourselves back at the question that we began with. What is the gospel? To answer that, it would probably help to understand how the people in the first century in the Roman world would have understood a gospel, right? So, evangelions or gospels were something that were used regularly, but it didn't have to do with just good news like dinner's ready or even the Lakers making the finals, right? That's not what, you would not hear the good news about that. Evangelions were political in nature, in the sense that they were missives declaring good news that had to do with a kingdom. And people living in the Roman Empire would have heard them all the time because every time a new emperor was coronated, an evangelion would go out throughout the whole land. Somebody would come into the city of Philippi with a scroll and begin to read the good news of the emperor Nero, who is now the emperor of Rome. Or every time one of the emperors won a decisive battle, again, criers would go out into all the city streets and they would declare the evangelion, the gospel of the, the empire of Rome that has once again overcome a foe. They were very familiar with evangelians. They were very familiar with good news, gospel messages. And they always had to do with the empire in which they lived. And why did it matter? Why was it important that everybody heard it? 
because they were, as citizens of the empire, it had a bearing on the way that they lived. If Nero is now the emperor, people need to know who it is they're worshiping and who they call their savior and their lord. So we go back to the night that Jesus was born. And a bunch of shepherds sitting out in a field tending their sheep. And all of a sudden an angel shows up and it's blinding and they're terrified. And he says, don't be afraid, but I come bearing good news and evangelion. That it will be great joy to the whole world. Because today, in the town of David, just over the hill, the Savior, the long-awaited Messiah has been born. That declaration was much more than just a birth announcement. That declaration was the announcement of the kingdom of God coming crashing into the kingdom of this world. And for a bunch of Jewish shepherds who were kind of on the periphery of, of, of the Jewish culture, it was kind of a big deal that they were the first to hear. But the reality is it was a declaration that the kingdom of God was advancing and it was beginning there in, you know, the Galilean region, but it was going to extend to the whole world. And as Paul is talking about his joy, that the gospel is advancing, it's that same gospel, that the kingdom of heaven is here. And Jesus giving his life for us does not just mean it, it saves us from hell, although that's a portion of it. His declaration that the kingdom of heaven is here or his declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a declaration that a new kingdom has come crashing into the world order. And even though people have been born into the Roman system or born into the Greek system and then been overcome by the Roman government or born into the Jewish system and then being conquered by the Roman government. And so now they have to live according to the Roman rules and customs and values. He's now saying no. There's a new king in town, and a new kingdom has come crashing in and is available to you. And I have taken hold of it. I now call Jesus Christ my Savior. He saved me out of this world order that is broken and deteriorating around me. But he hasn't just saved me out of it. He's also saved me into a new kingdom, into a new set of values. So, he's not, so the gospel is not just saving us from something, namely hell. It's saving us to something, namely the kingdom of heaven. We get to be citizens of a new kingdom with new kingdom values. And secondly, it's saving us back to the purpose for which God originally created us, to be his image bearers, his representatives, joining him in caring and cultivating the world, and that includes representing his heart to broken people. It was in his intention that the kingdom of Israel would do that, but they got so self-focused. They got into that prosperity mindset that it's about our comfort and our well-being, and God chose us because we're awesome and everybody else sucks. So finally, Jesus said, all right, fine, I'll do it. And he came and he modeled, no, it's not about you. I have not come to be served, but to serve. And if you follow me, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is what? The servant of everybody. And so what Paul is saying to the Philippians, and what he's saying to us, is if you've grabbed hold of Jesus, if you've heard the good news then your whole worldview has changed. You have, you have 
let go of your identification as a citizen of the kingdom of Rome or Israel or America or a political party of some sort. You've, you've let go of your dependence upon that king and you fixed your eyes on this new king. And you say, I am now a citizen of this kingdom, the kingdom of God. Not where the emperor's will is done, but where God's will is done. In my heart, in my home, in my neighborhood, and in my world, just as it is in heaven. And so let's go back now. With that understanding of what the gospel is, let's go back and let's read our passage this morning. Verse 27. Whatever happens to me, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You see that this isn't just about our life there and then, where we can just passively sit back and say, I got my ticket to heaven stamped so I can just live any way that I want now because I'm good to go. Jesus died to give us more than fire insurance. It's about how we live here and now as citizens of this kingdom. Then, whether I come and see you or I'm only hearing about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Your faith will be assigned to them that they will be destroyed because they've rejected Jesus. They've rejected his kingdom. They're living for their own little kingdoms. But that you will be saved, not by Nero, not by your own efforts. You will be saved by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Jesus Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. That prosperity gospel falls apart when you recognize that we're not promised easy, carefree lives. And sometimes saying yes to Jesus is painful. Since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had and you now hear that I still have. If we say yes to Jesus, if we embrace the gospel... It's about more than just the afterlife. It says something about this life. But God's greatest desire is not to protect us from discomfort. Is not. God's dream is not the American dream. The house, the, 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 you know, the, the flourishing lifestyle with all of the toys, the children that, you know, obey and, and, and become successful doctors or, or surgeons or, or attorneys or whatever you have it. That's not God's promise for us. God's promise for us is they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. In this world, you're going to have trouble. But you don't have to be overcome by that. Your hope is that because of what I've done on the cross, the brokenness of this world won't get the last word, but you get to be my representative, a, a citizen of my kingdom, who lives out my values in this world. Even though you live surrounded by people who have radically different values, allow your values to reflect my lordship in your life. That's what it means. Do you realize that Jesus never once said, hey, pray this prayer and you're good to go? What was Jesus' invitation Follow me. Walk with me. Learn from me. See the way that I live my life. See the way that I interact with people. See the kind of people I interact with. He interacted with a lot of people that the religious elite would have turned their nose up at. And he went right for them. 
allow your values to reflect my values. And, and, and Paul goes on, and we're just going to read a couple of verses of, of chapter 2, and then we're going to dive into it next week. And I, I just want to tell you this up front. I have been waiting for the conversation we're going to have next week for over a year. It is a passage that, that, that what we're going to explore next week is a passage that has been absolutely hitting my heart for over a year, and I just can't wait for us to grapple with it together. But let's just, let's just have the hors d'oeuvre here. Paul says this now, to people who are enduring persecution, he says, that's okay. Because it's a confirmation that you are being used by God to advance his kingdom and to shine light in the darkness. And guess what? People love darkness because their deeds are evil and it exposes them. So of course they want to write you off as small-minded or bigoted. Of course they just want to brush your faith off because it challenges and convicts them. And people don't like that. So therefore, because you're enduring this, because you're a citizen of the kingdom of God living as a foreigner and a stranger in a land that is not your home, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if you have any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. In other words, if you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, then live like it. Because you're not your own. You were bought at a price. And you reflect the values of your kingdom. And so when people look at you, do they see Jesus? That should be our desire. And of course, it's really hard to do on our own strength impossible, I would say, to do on our own strength. That's why we need the Holy Spirit's enablement. But the kingdom of God has radically different values than the kingdom of this world. And we say this, but I, I just want to help us see just how contrary they can be. You don't need to turn here, but I, I'm just going to point out a couple of places. If there's one spot in Scripture I would suggest you go, if you want to see just how different the values of God's kingdom are according to the values of the kingdoms of this world, whether it's Rome or Israel or America, just go to the Sermon on the Mount that begins in Matthew chapter 5 and runs through Matthew chapter 7. It's a beautiful spot where Jesus begins to teach about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And these are some of the things that he says. Blessed are you when people persecute you and when they say all these evil things against you because of me rejoice and be glad you should be glad in persecution because great is your reward in heaven it's not about here and now it's not about your comfort it's not about your accumulation you're blessed if you're persecuted you know why they, they persecuted the prophets before me so blessed are you if you endure persecution for me. Or, or how about this one? Can we throw that one up there? Yeah. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. This was a central Jewish thought. If somebody pokes out one of your eyes, maybe they throw a rock and it knocks your eye out, you have the right to take their eye. If somebody punches you in the face and knocks out one of your tooth, you have the right to punch out their tooth. If somebody slaps you in the face, you have the right to slap them back. If somebody says something unkind to you on social media, you get to respond in kind, baby. 
You've heard it said, go right ahead and do it. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, what do you do? Turn the other cheek. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about turning this cheek and walking away, right? We're talking about these cheeks. Or if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Now, this is talking to people who live under Roman occupation. Roman centurions had the right. They're carrying their packs, and they're walking along the road, and they see some worker out on the side of the, in a field. They have a legal right, according to Roman custom, to say, hey, you, get over here. Take my pack, carry it for a mile. And they could force any Jewish person or anybody under occupation to carry their pack for one mile. This was happening regularly. And Jesus says, don't just do it for one mile. Take it the second mile. So when we say go in the second mile, that's what we're talking about. Going above and beyond what is expected socially. Or the next one. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. How many of us are good at doing this? I love people who love me. I love people who think like me, act like me, listen to the same kind of music I listen to, vote like me, right? We love people just like us. But what about people who are radically different? What about people who actually stand in opposition to us and want the opposite things that we do? What about people who pray for our destruction? What about them? Do you ever secretly revel in when, when somebody on, in an opposite, you know, whether it be whoever the Lakers are playing, I don't know why I keep talking about them, it doesn't really matter, um, or, uh, you know, a country that stands at odds with us and we hear that they have stumbled in some way or that somebody has been blown up by a, a bomb that was intended for something else, and we celebrate that internally. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you to love your enemy. And pray for those who persecute you. Boy, does that one just cut to the heart? Does that one convict you? It does me. Especially when it comes to this whole political environment that we find ourselves in. There's a whole lot of celebrating when the other side stumbles. Even if it hurts people. And Jesus would say, don't celebrate that. Pray for those who disagree with you. Pray for those whose votes will negate your votes. Last one. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of other people to be seen by them. And then he goes on to enumerate three different ways that this might happen. When you give, don't announce it with trumpets so that everybody can see how generous you're being. And when you pray, don't go out into the streets and say, oh God, you are a good God and be as eloquent as you can. Guilty, right? Um, and when, you, when you fast, when you decide to Forgo something good in order to instead spend that time focusing on God. Don't walk around going, oh, I'm so hungry, you know. Why? Because then you are doing it for the wrong, you're doing the right things for the wrong motives. You are, you are trying to curry the approval of people around here when you really only have an audience of one, Jesus is saying. So focus on this relationship and don't worry about this. So do it in secret so that it really truly can be an act of worship, an act of a declaration of dependence as opposed to an act of trying to curry people's approval and get thumbs up likes on social media, hypothetically. I guess that means that when we do the serve day next week, we probably shouldn't post a whole lot of pictures about it, huh? I don't know, hypothetically. So those are just some of the examples that we find of how different the values of the kingdom of God is 
the kingdom that many of us find ourselves in. When we say yes to Jesus Christ, we're not just saying, yes, I want to go to heaven. We're saying, yes, I want to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God here in this world and in the life to come. Jesus, I want your values to be my values. I want to live as an ambassador of hope in a world that is desperately needing hope. I want to live as light that radiates in the darkness. Now, I will say that this is way easy to say, very difficult to carry out, and that's why time and again, Jesus reminds us of the Holy Spirit. Time and again, why Paul keeps bringing up the Holy Spirit. Because apart from the Holy Spirit, we can't do anything good. We cannot become reflections of Jesus by our own strength. I've tried it. The Pharisees tried it. They built the law into a ladder that they tried to climb, but it was a broken stairway to heaven. And all it did was reveal to them their imperfection, which is exactly what Jesus intended for it to do. Not to save us, not to make us righteous, but to reveal our desperate need for a Savior. I've used this analogy before. The law was never intended to make us righteous, that we could somehow clean ourselves up and make us worthy of God's love. The law is like the x-ray machine at my dentist's office. I go sit down. It doesn't fix a single thing. All it does is it exposes the rot in my mouth so that I am willing to go and sit down and allow a dentist to take a, a metal implement and stick it into my mouth and drill and fill, right? I don't, and I won't sit down and let the dentist work on me unless I know I have a a cavity. And in the same way, I'm not going to be looking for a Savior unless I recognize the rot in my own life, and that's what the law did. But way too many of us have turned the law into a broken stairway that we try to climb to heaven. And you will fall short every time. So don't try it. Just take it from one who's tried it. The Pharisees tried it. Jesus said, your righteousness had better surpass that of the Pharisees. But he wasn't saying you just have to try harder. He was saying you have to depend more. We need the Holy Spirit. So there's two ways that we can respond this morning. The first one is there are some of you out here that are listening, whether in this room or listening from home, who've heard about Jesus. You think he's a good guy. But quite honestly, you want to be the captain of your own ship. You have been focusing your energy on building your own kingdom, on making your own name great. And this morning, the invitation is to lay down your desire to make your own name great. And to focus on him and say, I want to be about making your name great. I'm going to stop trying to build my own little fiefdom where I get to be in charge you know, until I shuffle off this mortal coil. And instead, I want to be about advancing your kingdom. And I want to do it by allowing my life to become a reflection of your life. Jesus, I want to call you not only my Savior, I want to call you my Lord. I am going to choose to follow you. And if that's you, it just begins, you know, again, we're not saved by a prayer. And a prayer is not the finish line where you say, good to go, I've got my fire insurance. The prayer of acceptance is simply the first step in a lifetime of following Jesus. And it extends beyond when our bodies break down into eternity. But it begins with the first step. And for those of you who are ready, let me just 
pray a prayer that could look like your first step in a lifetime of following Jesus and becoming more like him. There's nothing magic about this prayer. It is simply an act of saying, I accept you, Jesus. I want to pray this, and if this resonates with you, I invite you to pray it yourself between you and him. Jesus, I need you. I'm tired of trying to make my own name great. And I choose to be about making your name great. I'm tired of trying to succeed in this world. I choose to be about your kingdom. I want to be a citizen of heaven. Jesus, I'm tired of trying to clean myself up. I I, I invite you to come and clean me up. I choose to follow you. I choose to allow you to shape and mold my life. I choose to allow you to bring about your purpose and your plans in me. Help yourself to my life, Jesus. Amen. Again, there's nothing magical about that. And if you really mean it, you can use totally different words. The point is simply saying, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you gave your life for me, and so I'm going to choose to live for you. Now, the second way that we can respond this morning is there's many of us in here who have prayed some rendition of that, who have chosen to take that first step years ago, and you have been kind of stumbling along, taking steps for the course of your life or or whenever that was. And you've been trying to do it by your own strength. And you're finding that you are a pretty pathetic representation of Jesus. And this morning, I simply want to invite the Holy Spirit to refill us and to come in and begin to clean house and to have his way in us so that we can be better reflections of him. So I'm going to pray this for me because I need this. And if what I'm praying is for you, then it's for you as well. Jesus, thank you for giving your life for us. We embrace you as our Savior We choose to follow you as our Lord. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you now are coming into our life or have already come into our life. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that the same Spirit that raised our Lord from the grave is willing to reside in us. And Holy Spirit, it's pretty messy in here, but we invite you to come in and clean house. Would you expose in us any areas that are not in alignment with our Lord? Any areas where we've been holding on to the reins and trying to to be about our own business, would you give us the courage to look inside and say, help yourself to my life. And if anything needs to go, would you give us the courage to let it go? Holy Spirit, we need you. Would you breathe new life into us so that we can better reflect the heart of our Lord as we live as his ambassadors here on earth. May your will, Jesus, be done here just as it is in heaven. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. Let's worship together.
ahead and stand if you're not standing already so we can sing this last song together. You know, the really fun part about getting to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven, living in the kingdoms of this world, is that we don't stop worshiping him when we leave this building. If anything, this was just kind of the staff meeting. Now we get to go and be the church doing what we are called to do. And that is living as citizens of the kingdom, living out the gospel. Or as one church you know, elder put it one day, Preach the gospel constantly. Use words if necessary. Let your lives speak. Let people see your faith through the way that you treat people, through the way that you respond when somebody slights you online, through the way that you conduct business, through the way that you endure hardship, because it's coming, guys. We've been, it's been hard. It's not going to get easier. And yet we get to shine ever brighter the darker it gets. So may our lives shine brightly.
Hey, if there are ways that we can be joining you in praying, we want to. And one of the ways we do that is simply letting us know. So pastor at lighthousecommunity.com, please let us know the ways that we can be praying. You can just send us an email. We pray for it a couple of times a week at least. And then if you want to give, for those of you who are here, we're not collecting it. We're not passing the, any sort of a basket right now. We've got white boxes in the back. But if you uh, want to give online, you can just go to lighthousecommunity.com and there's a way to give there. As a declaration, God, I trust you more than I trust my bank account. But, but just go be the church now, all right? Love, I love you guys. Have a wonderful week.